Thanks for listening to one of our messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. in person and online. To find out more about our church or to connect to any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you seek to follow Jesus. Hey everybody, how are we? Good, my name's Charlie. If we haven't met, I'm the senior pastor. If you want to say hi, after the service, I hang out in this general area. Before we get into the sermon each week, we acknowledge the culture that we come from, and then we project ourselves into the culture Christ calls us to. We acknowledge this culture is me-centric and critical, and then we also push us into a space where we listen to God instead of critique other people. And so we have a phrase that we say, the move of the spirit is inward to conviction, not outward to critique. So might that be our prayer this morning? As you meet here today, we know the scripture is uh, more of a mirror for our own souls than a microscope to look at the souls of others. And so we just ask the simple question, as we open the word of God, where and how is God going to speak to you? Because he is. Where and, ha- and how is God going to show you that he's good? Because he is. So as we open the scripture this morning, as we together journey into Romans 14, I pray and know that God will speak to you. So we're just going to take a second and we're going to pray. I'll ask you to pray that the Holy Spirit might do his work this morning. Let's pray. God, I'm thankful to be here. An acknowledgement that I need something outside of myself, an acknowledgement that, that you're truly good and worthy of worship. I'm grateful that you can withstand the weight of the worship that we put on you. This morning, as we open your scriptures, Holy Spirit, speak. In a very practical sense, this is written to a very divided church, and so my prayer is that we see the goodness of God through our divide this morning. I'd ask if you're comfortable, just take a few seconds and and ask the Holy Spirit this morning to speak to your spirit. And ask that you pray for me as we get into a church that's divided and a culture that's divided. I pray that as we talk about our responses to those that disagree with us, it's not fueled from shame or guilt, but rather leans in towards God's goodness and how he restores and redeems so that we all together might paint a bigger picture of the gospel. Pray these things in the name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. When I was in grad school, one of my classes was a class called Church Models. It was in Chicago. And so one of the assignments was going to five different kinds of churches around the Chicago area and then writing papers on it. So naturally, I went to Bible churches, and I went to an Anglican church, and I went to a mega church. What's up, Willow Creek? I went to all these different kind of churches. And one Sunday, I went to this church called St. Sabinus Church in the south side of Chicago. I did not know what to expect. St. Sabinus Church, I'm going to read you their mission statement because I read their mission statement going in, had to write a paper on it, and I read this and I thought, yeah, I can get down with that, their mission statement. To nurture and develop spiritually mature Christians who are not confined by the walls of the sanctuary but can penetrate the world in order to present God's way of living. That's a lot, but that's great, (laughs) you know? We just say, follow Jesus, make disciples. That's good for them, and I agree with all the words they use. What I didn't know 
going to that church were three other adjectives that I didn't necessarily grow up with being from Texas as a Methodist. One was I was walking into just a black church. And I thought that was great, by the way. Because in my world of Methodism, the most excitement we had was Palm Sunday when they walked in with some banners. They didn't walk quickly. They just walked in with some banners. God was working if there was glitter in the Methodist church in, in, in Carrollton, you know? And so I went to this black church that had a little more energy, and that was great. But then the next two words, it got farther and farther from what I was used to growing up. The next one, it was a black Pentecostal church. And I'm like, okay, oh, okay, that just means that you're going to be there for a while, everybody, you know? And the last word was, it was a black Pentecostal Catholic church. <laughs> I have not forgotten the only time I went to St. Sabinus, you know? Here's why I bring that up. I love their mission statement, and they love Jesus. It was so far from what I expected and how I'd normally worship before. It challenged me to see God working in different ways that I never would have ascribed to God working before. We, we get into the rhythms of church that we grow up with, and then we can find God to thinking he works through those rhythms and only those rhythms. The problem is, the problem is, sometimes God works outside of the ways that we grew up with, and our response to that matters. Our response to that matters. It tells the health of our God and our churches. A few years back, I was driving in this area, and a friend of mine who is kind of on the fence about Jesus looked at me and said, hey, if you guys all worship the same God, why are there so many churches? And I said, that's a great question. Yeah, I gave the typical answer. God speaks through different people at different times, you know, which is true. But the question I have this morning, the question they're dealing with in Romans 14 is, what do you do? What do you do with the differences that we have here and how we worship? And look, I'm, I'm a fan of different churches. I really am. Don't mishear me this morning. I also think that in a culture that plants churches left and right all day long, sometimes we miss out on the best God has for us. I'm not saying don't plant churches. The motive matters. Are we running from something instead of running towards health? You know? So this text, it begins, it's in the middle of kind of this section on how we love one another. If you've been with us in Romans, Paul is writing to a divided church. Paul is writing to a church that the Jewish people got kicked out. They thought they had the corner market on what it meant to follow Jesus. They got kicked out by Claudius. And five years later, they came back to Rome where they left and they thought the church was dead because they left. And then they found the church thriving with Gentile people that did it differently. And they had a hard time with that. So the book of Romans is written to a divided church by Paul saying the gospel's bigger than Jew or Gentile. And he uses most of the first 11 chapters to break down the Jewish privilege and the Gentile right. And so you guys are bound by Christ for his good so that people might see the goodness of God in the gospel. And in, and in chapters 12 through 15, we end next week. In chapters 12 through 15, Paul gets very practical and says, now this is what it looks like to live out your church in a divided church. And in chapter 14, he gets extremely practical. He starts like this in verse one. He says, now receive the one who is weak in faith and do not have disputes over differing opinions. That word receive there is very, very strong. It doesn't mean put up with. It means accept with genuine love and care. It's in a certain, it's written a certain way in the Greek that, that means it's a genuine embrace and not a reluctant tolerance. So what he's saying there is all those things that are different about you, don't just put up with, press into, and love through. There's very different ways that we have to do that. And so I wonder this morning, as we come together, different church backgrounds and traditions in a world that plants tons of churches and in a culture that goes to different churches based on preference, and again, don't mishear me here, that's not all bad. 
I wonder how good we are at receiving differences in our churches. I wonder how that shapes how we worship. And so Paul's going to say to this church, receive one another. And then that phrase at the end, especially when you have disputes over differing opinions, the wording there literally means uh, differing opinions that are, that are indifferent towards the gospel. So what we're talking about this morning is uh, what a lot of church fathers talk about is idea fora, which basically means matters that are indifferent to what the Bible says about the goodness of the gospel. So, so we would call these amoral things, not the Ten Commandments, but other things to, the Bible doesn't necessarily speak to. And it's very important we keep in mind what we're talking about this morning. If we don't keep in mind the category of things we're talking about, then all things get put on the table, and our God does not do that. He has a specific ideal of what good and bad is, because that's what it means to love somebody. And so just so you know, the issues we're talking about this morning are not any and all issues. And we know that if you just look at a list of what that Paul has written to this church in the last three chapters, you see very black and white issues, right? Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. It says, do not be conceited. Do not repay evil for evil. Be subject to the governing authorities. That's not an option, that's a command. The, the verse that led into this verse in chapter 13 says, live not carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or, immoral, immorality or sensuality, not in discord or jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to arouse its desires. The list we're talking about today, the differences that we're talking about, is not a difference of morality, it's a difference of preference. But, but it's deeper than just preference because it shapes how we see God and how we worship God. So it's, it's not as flippant as, well, I just don't like that worship song. And I've seen it in churches, you know? For a long time, growing up Methodist, my dad, when we left that church, he would say, they didn't go to church for a while, and uh, he would say he's not going to go to church without an altar in it, because that's not how you worship God. I would disagree with that. I understand where that came from, a deep-seatedness of how he was formed in the churches he grew up with, and his dad was a pastor, and that probably played into it a little bit. But issues in this category are, you probably know them, I and mean, drinking is a very, very big one in this category, whether you can or whether you can't. It says don't get drunk, not don't drink. Dancing is a very big one. Some churches believe that is not appropriate. I went to college and undergrad. If you were going to dance at your wedding, you had to get special permission. I mean, I understand why. I've seen white kids dance. Uh, um, <laughs> I'm one of them. It's okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, I've, I've seen the gamut of this one. Yeah, I mean, worship styles, whether you can worship, whether you can't worship. I've been to churches where they felt like if you played a drum in the service, you were inviting the demonic in, and it's not necessarily true, but they didn't feel like they could use drums. I've seen people that push back pretty hard, this is 20 years ago, on whether or not you can extend Christian worship to Saturday and Sunday. Now we have churches celebrating Easter in February just to get it done, you know? <laughs> but the problem is, we have to understand is these aren't necessarily uh, just flippant issues. T today's culture, I see two large issues we we've dealt with at CBC about this. One is Enneagram, is it good for you, is it bad for you, is it demonic, is it not? The other is worship songs. Some people don't believe you can sing worship songs that were written by people that they don't know or trust, that were written by churches that they don't agree with. Can you sing those? Can you not? Do they make revenue on it? Do they not? Is it good for us? Is it not? These are deep-seated issues of more than just preference, but how we see God. And so it's these issues to which Paul is talking. And in this context, there are two he's going to address. One is about eating, and one is um, about the, the days with which we worship. And so we're not going to read the whole chapter all at once. I'm going to kind of go in and out of the chapter and I'll cite verses when I get there. 
but essentially he's talking about, hey, you can't eat these certain things or you can and you have a difference of opinion on it. And why that mattered is because the Jewish fasting laws were a big deal. It's what divided them from Gentiles among some other things. In the middle intertestamental period, there's this revolt called the Maccabean Revolt, the Maccabean Revolt. And, and, and the level of their, what they could eat and what they couldn't eat got even more pronounced to where at this point in the Jewish context, at this point, the what you ate literally defined how much you loved God and your fellow countrymen. So it wasn't just about, I think it's wrong. It's about, I'm no longer one of us if I eat this thing. And then days of the week. So in the Jewish calendar, you had certain days you worshiped on and certain days you didn't. You Sabbathed and you didn't. You fasted and you didn't. The, the, the Sabbath, or the specific day of the week for worship, defined the old Mosaic covenant, which is kind of what Romans is breaking down in a lot of places, is the privilege they felt because they had that. And so these are the deep-seated issues that isn't flippant to the Jewish audience. It's something they grew up with that their parents said, this is how we worship God, and if you don't worship like this, you don't love God. These are deeply seated and what Paul is going to do is say, there are some of you that feel like you can act in those things and others that don't. You have to understand that this issue, strong and weak, is whether or not your faith allows you to live into specific liberties. It's not your identity. So Paul comes along and he says, hey, the Old Testament is not our binder anymore. And so some of the regulations you lived under aren't applicable anymore. But there were certain Jewish people that couldn't get on board with that. Just like my dad had to go to a church with an altar. That's the way he worshiped God. And so this, this question, differing opinions, isn't really about right and wrong. It's really not. It's about how we love one another when we disagree on what worship looks like. And that's a tough question because it's something that's deeply formative to us. It's not flippant at all. And I think one thing we have to acknowledge up front is that you want to say that you're a strong or a weak Christian and you want to use that label all the time, but that's not really the case. I've never met somebody that's strong through all the issues and weak through all the issues. Usually it's a mixture of both. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk to the weak first because that's what Paul does. And we're going to talk to the strong and then we're going to try and tie it all together. But when I'm talking to the weak, don't be like, mm-hmm, those people. I've got a big Bible. I've never seen an R-rated movie except for the passion. I am strong. You know what I'm talking about? What, what this exposes, hopefully in us, is that we are strong and weak in different areas. Sometimes my conscience permits me to do things like drink, and sometimes it doesn't permit me to watch things that other people say are okay for them. The question we got to ask is, where is the Holy Spirit guiding you? And the question I have to ask is, am I allowing you to live into that or not? It's funny when it says differing opinions in verse 1, it doesn't even mean change them. It just means let them be. And so he's going to talk to two groups. He's going to start with the weak. He says in uh, <clears throat> verse 2 and 3, the one who eats everything must not despise the one who does not. That's the strong. And then to the weak, he says, and the one who abstains must not judge the one who's, heating, who's eating everything. So let's start with the weak first, the second half of that. The one who abstains must not judge the one who eats everything. He's just going to call it out. If you are someone who needs a little more regulation around how you worship God, do you know what your proclivity to do is when people don't live into your regulation? You're going to judge them. You are. You're going to say that you're not doing what you should be doing or want to be doing. You're going to say that you're probably not holy or pursuing righteousness. You're going to call into question their motives because your idea of what good is is to judge the actions of others without looking behind the action into the motive or into what God thinks about them. And this is true then, but it's also as much or more true now. Do you know why? Because we live, we live in an incredibly judgmental culture. Everything you see asks your opinion of it. You know that? 
You get online, there's a little heart thing you can click on or not click on. There's a thumbs up, there's a thumbs down, there's a swipe left, there's a swipe right. I hope we don't do that, but some people do. You know what I'm talking about? There is, in our culture, a seat of judgment that comes right to the center of our souls that if we don't look at and fight, we start to believe that it's our job to judge. It's our job to judge. How high was your hand in worship? High enough to say, I love God or not quite? It's our job to judge your motives and your actions, again, in the issues of not morality, but amorality around how much we care for and love God. We rank everything. The problem with us being put in the seat of judgment is this misappropriates our job. He goes on to say in verse four, you who pass judgment on another servant, before his own master he stands and falls. He will stand for the Lord is able to make him stand. Here's the first moment that he looks at this group of people and says, do you know why you don't judge the amoral actions of someone else or the actions that the Bible doesn't necessarily speak to? Because you are not who they report to at the end of the day. He goes on to say later on, but, eat, but you who eat only vegetables, why do you judge your brother or sister? And you who eat everything, why do you despise your brother or sister? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, for it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue will give praise to God. What, what he's saying is that in the end of the day, you've got to recognize your role. And this is actually a beautiful grace-filled statement. If you feel like it's your job to call out the faults in others around these issues, I'm just here to tell you, Paul says it's not. Have a great Sunday, everybody. Take the weight of that responsibility off your shoulders and live free, all right, you know? I think it's a beautiful thing that you want to help people find godliness, how you describe godliness, but God says that you don't need to do that because people answer to him, not you. So he's, he's trying to tear down this deep-seated desire we all have to judge the actions of others. And it says in there, do you know why? Because God has already accepted him. But then it pushes beyond just their action into we challenge the motivation in verse six. The one who observes the day does it for the Lord. The one who eats, eats for the Lord because, it gives, because he gives thanks to God. And the one who abstains from eating abstains for the Lord and he gives thanks to God. So in verse six, what he does is he says to the people that have a proclivity to judge, stop it, you don't know their motivation. They do it because it's how they love me. And, and what we do is we judge in a way that attributes a fallacy, that attributes weakness to people that might not be weak. There's a, a, a principle called the fundamental attribution error. It's our tendency to attribute others' behavior to their character while attributing our own to circumstance. It's why we say if other people are late, they're rude. If I'm late, it's not my fault, you know? All the time. And so what we do is we judge their actions and we say this clearly reveals a flaw in their character. And God says, you don't know the motive behind what they do and why they do it. You don't know why they drive that car you don't know why they went to that restaurant. You don't know why they dressed that way. None of that is moral. None of that is, is don't kill, don't murder, don't sleep around. But we attribute those things. Uh, I was a middle school pastor when I got here. Actually, somebody texted me yesterday. Yesterday was my 14-year anniversary at CBC. You know that? I know, I know. All right. That was not nearly loud enough. Yesterday was my... 14-year anniversary at CBC, and uh, you, uh, you had your shot, and you missed it, all right? So let's not try to make up for it now, okay? Uh, no, but I, I was a middle school pastor here, and once a year, we'd take a bunch of kids to Hurricane Harbor, middle school kids, like 115 of them, you know, so it was just chaos, 
And every year, every year, it wouldn't fail. Uh, some parents would come up to me and they'd say, hey, Charlie, we have X, Y, and Z. This one girl is wearing a two-piece. You need to go talk to her. And I'd say, absolutely not. <laughs> that does not end well for anybody. Um, but, but it came from a place where they couldn't see a way in which this person would wear this thing and not do it immorally. Instead of saying, you know what, I, I don't know this person's motive. It might be, it might not be. It's not my place to necessarily judge that. That conversation is deeper and richer, by the way. That's just an example. And so what, what Paul is saying is, look, the Bible doesn't say anything about bathing suits, <laughs> you know? Thank God. Um, it tells us that in the places that we can't see why they don't do things our way, give them grace because you don't know their motives and stop judging because it's not your job. Again, very important note, this isn't morality here. It's not the Ten Commandments or the things that, that live into the rhythms of God's good ways because there are those and when we break those, we all find brokenness in our world. It's not that, it's the other ones. And so to these people, to the weak, he's gonna look at the weak and he's gonna say, hey, t- to the weak, your legalism shouldn't limit your love for other people. It just shouldn't. And that's going to be your desire and that's going to be your bent. Don't let it. And look, hey guys, there are areas in my life that I'm weak and I want to make people worship like me and I want to limit my ability to love others because they need to do things my way. But then he's going to say also, let's look at the strong. If you go back to that verse at the beginning, the first part, the one who eats everything must not despise the one who does it. And then he continues his thread in verse 13 when he starts picking on the strong a little bit. Therefore, we must not pass judgment on one another, but rather determine never to place an obstacle or a trap before a brother or sister. I know I'm convinced in the Lord Jesus that there's nothing unclean in and of itself, but it's unclean to the person who considers it unclean. Verse 15, for if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. Do not destroy by your food someone for whom Christ died. He's going to say, the, the weak have proclivity to judge, but, but do you know what the strong do? They have a proclivity to despise the weak because it's messing up their idea of quality of life. So when I, before I got married, my wife was living down in Dallas and I was living in Dallas somewhere else and uh, she all of a sudden found out, I think we'd been dating for three or four years and she found out that she had all these food allergies, you know? She didn't know why, and they came out of nowhere. And so actually, we're in her apartment one day, and uh, I mean, it was, it was bad stuff. You know, like she would eat something, and she didn't know what it was, and her face would get like all red, and her lips would crack and bleed, and her eyes would be swollen shut. Um, it did not look good when we went out in public, you know? I mean, like they would look at me, you know? I'm like, I didn't do it. It was pasta, uh, <laughs> literally. <laughs> so I remember we were sitting on the couch, and she, she looks up at me, and she said, you did not sign up for this. And I said, I did not. <clears throat> And that was the end of the conversation. Um, but, but here's the deal. It, it, my buddy and I, my best friend in high school, he actually has a bakery in El Paso right now. We both grew up because we love to cook, saying that we're never going to marry somebody that, that doesn't fully eat everything because and his wife's a vegan and my wife can't eat tasty things. And um, the, the proclivity I have in that moment is to get mad because I no longer eat non-gluten-free pasta in my house. It causes us to be like, I can do this and you're not letting me. You're taking away from my quality of life that's God-given. I'm allowed to do this and you're not letting me. And so we well up our, our, our ability to despise our brother or sister. And this is what Paul says to that. Do not pass judgment. Rather, determine never to place an obstacle or trap before a brother or sister. 
Those two words, obstacle and trap. The first word means literally a stumbling block on your road towards something. So as they move into Christ-likeness, don't put something there that can slow them up in their journey. And the second one is much deeper. The second word there in the Greek literally means like a trap that could stop them from being a disciple altogether. What he's saying there is don't put things in place that could make them question their love for God. And just as a small bit of an aside, this is more, I said it before, this is more than just preference. This is something deep-seated that people feel that causes them not to feel as much love for God anymore. There's a difference between preference and that. Like, for example, there are worship songs that I I just don't like, right? I know a pastor was supposed to like all of them, but there are ones that I just don't like. The staff knows this because they try to sneak them in when I'm teaching, which is all the time. And... um, one of them is, uh, there's a, one that goes, even in just a smile, I can, I can feel the Father's love. You might like that one. I call it the Les Mis worship song because the way it starts out, let me be filled with kindness and compassion for the one. I feel like Jean Valjean has wrote a, ba- a worship song, you know? Just not my preference. Here's the deal. That song does not call, cause me to question my love for Jesus. That's a preference. We sing it all the time in CBC. There's a difference. So to the strong and weak, I, I'd say this, that the strong cannot despise the weak, but, but it's not just, man, I, I don't like that hat or that shirt or that song. It's like, does this actually cause you not to see or believe the goodness of God anymore? And, and for first century Jews, if you ate bacon at a meal, they couldn't worship anymore. They couldn't. <laughs> if you violated their food laws or their worship days laws, it wasn't about, I can just push through. It's, I don't know if this is worth it anymore. It caused them to not be disciples of Jesus anymore. Those are big deal issues. So the first thing he says to the strong is, he goes, watch your actions because it has a lot of consequence in those people you're supposed to love. He goes on in verse 23 to say, but the man who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not do so from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. In verse 15, he says it like this, for if your brother or sister is distressed because of what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. Do not destroy by your food someone for whom Christ died. We don't realize that sometimes in our liberty, we can literally damage people's discipleship. So he's saying to the strong, stop despising those people who aren't like you. Paul's going to say that he's a stronger person in this area of food and Sabbath, but he says just because they worship in that way doesn't mean that they don't love Jesus. And so he says don't despise because when you do that, you actually hurt people's discipleship. And then he broadens it out a little bit. If you look at verse 16, therefore, do not let what you consider to be good spoken of as evil. He broadens it out to the context of of Rome. For the kingdom of God does not consist of food and drink, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. For the one who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by people. So, So what he's saying is, hey, don't let what you consider to be good to be spoken of as evil. And he says, remember what the church is all about. It's not about food. It's about righteousness and it's about holiness and it's about the things of Jesus, joy in the spirit. And if we do things or have conversations that cause people to see side conversations and not the central conversation, we don't do justice to what the gospel is. I think all the time, my my friend who started a church up in Chicago, I was in grad school with, I've told this story before. He was a a, a hard rock drummer, a heavy metal drummer. So he's all tatted up and the tattoos are just fine. That's a liberty issue, by the way. Some people don't. Some people think you can't worship Jesus that way. So he started church, and he'd always wear long sleeves. And I was 23, I think, and naive, and thought I knew all the things. And 
So when he said he wore long sleeves, I told him, don't do that. That's not loving to your people. Let them see it, then teach through it. Grow them up, you know? And he said, no. He said, it's not right, it's not good, because at the end of the day, if they walk out of a gathering together and they talk about my tattoos and not the gospel, it wasn't a good gathering. That's the truth. What are we causing people to focus on? I think right now for the church, a lot of it's around politics. We've spent a lot of time talking about politics in the last month at CBC. There's a church I recently read in the area that basically is fighting the government and the IRS on their ability to promote uh, people to political office and get behind them. And look, that's fine if they want to do that, but I think people leave that church and they see politicians, not Jesus, and I think that's wrong. I do. I think our job is to make people see the greatness of God, and it's tough to do that when people see the lesser conversations of side issues of the gospel. It's not that they're not good. Those are good issues we should talk about and press into and we should learn more about. It's not that they're not good. They're just not our best good. That's Jesus. And so Paul says, when you have these conversations, when you make your narrative about all the liberties you have, people don't see the goodness of God and that's what's supposed to happen. So he says, make sure that this thing is about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, for the one who serves Christ in this way is pleasing to God and approved by people. When you argue about the lesser things, people can't see the greatness of God. And so for us that have liberty in certain areas, don't let that happen. And here's the principle he gets to. You know what love does? Love in every single way, it it limits your liberty. It does. So he says to the strong, don't don't let your liberty limit your love for other people. And I, I know that love limits my liberty. I got small kids. All the things I want to do, I don't get to do. This day is a great example. You know, back in the day when I used to fall back without kids, how much of a joy that day was? Do you know that? I said, man, I have an extra hour of sleep. God is good. I can either catch up on one or go to bed later. This is amazing. Do you know what this day is now? A horrible reminder of how much I miss singleness. Do you know that? Because regardless of how much you try, do you know what I did not get to do today in any way? An extra hour of sleep. Because <laughs> my kids are up and at it at like 5.30, and that would have been 6.30, and that would have been just fine, but they could not comprehend daylight savings time. Do you know why? Nobody can. That's why, all right? Love fundamentally limits our liberty. And so he says to the strong, hey man, your liberty is not your best good, your love for others is. Rearrange your order of goods. So then he goes on, and he says, In verse uh, 19, you can follow along. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for building up one another. Do not destroy the work of God for the sake of food. For although all things are clean, it's wrong for anyone to stumble by what you eat. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes you to stumble. The faith you have, keep it it to yourself before God. You might think that's a weird way to end. He's saying just don't talk about things. No, 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 He's saying don't let what you talk about, the central point of what you're talking about, be the side issues and not the main issues, what we just talked about. What he's saying, what he's saying in this moment is that to love one another means to lay down parts of you that you think are vital for the church overall. Again, not in morality issues, but in other issues. Because here's what I know, is that both, I think sometimes we do this text a disservice when we talk about strong and weak, because both sides think they're strong don't they? <laughs> both sides, I said think, both sides know they're strong, right? 
If you just did it my way, it would be better. If you just lived this way, it would be better. If you just listened to this kind of music, you'd have a, a better relationship with Jesus. Both sides know they're strong. And so he says to both sides that think they're strong, the faith you have, keep it to yourself before God. What he, what he says there is this roundabout way of saying, do you know the way forward for a church that seemingly is all about individuals? The way forward for a church that sees me at the center is always, has always been meekness. I think, I think when we look at the weakness here of people or the strength of people or the strength of the weak and the strength of the strong, what Paul gets to in the end is this idea that what binds us together is the bigger mission, mission of the gospel. And the only way forward is if we all see using whatever gifts, strength and weakness we have for the good of others. And so, so he says at the end of that, the faith you have, keep it to yourself before God. I love what one writer says, that the problem here is a lack of reverence for the conscience of one another. So both sides think they're strong. I think we have to remember one principle. So that the weak might not limit their love through legalism and the strong might not let their liberty limit the love they have towards others. If both sides think they're in the right and in the no and the stronger of the two, we have to remember one key principle that the Bible meets weakness all the time with meekness. And just so we're on the same page, meekness is uh, the ability to control yourself when you want to show others how much you can control. It's the disciplined display of power for the purpose of others. That's what Jesus is and does. It's Philippians 2. That's what it's all about. It says that we were weak in our sin. We needed a savior. We couldn't find salvation anywhere else. And do you know what Jesus did? He laid down all of the resplendence of his godness, not his godness, the resplendence of his godness, and he met us here. I think about Jesus on the cross when the guy's tempting him and taunting him and saying, hey, come off the cross, and he says, no. It's a disciplined display of power for the good of others because weak, strong, we both think we're right. <laughs> we both think we know the way to godliness and Christ-likeness. But strong or weak, our church seeks to serve others, just like the Roman church seeks to serve others. We have to be the kind of church that allows others to fully follow God in the first place. And the way to do that is to make this church less about me and more about others. And the way to do that is to be a church of meekness, not of me. And so to the strong and the weak, to the weak, he says, don't let your legalism limit your love for others. To the strong, he says, don't let your liberty limit your love for others. But to the strong and the weak, he's going to say, you know what you need to do? Be meek. Because verse 7 is kind of what this thing revolves around. It says in verse 7, for none of us lives for himself and none of us dies for himself. What he's saying is this church that had these issues needs to remember that you're not in it for you and I'm not in it for you. My best good is if I'm in it for you and you're in it for me, you know? Because that's what Jesus does. He calls us out of a self-service lifestyle and says, serve one another and find greater purpose and greater fulfillment. He calls us to be a church of meekness because that's fully how we see the gospel lived out best. When we control our desire to control, when we limit the power that we have so that people might see the greater purposes of God. And so he says to the strong and he says to the weak, he says to the strong and he says to the strong, be meek so that others might grow and see God. So that's the call to us. I'd say there's a couple things to do. Uh, one is, I think you just have to <laughs> recognize how we talk about church. Words matter. If we only reference church as my church or me or mine, I just cause us to question, it is your church. That's the, that's the juxtaposition of, this, of the nature of this thing. It's your church, but it's our church. But how we talk about church matters. So maybe try and use words more like our, we, instead of me, mine, when we talk about church. That matters. I think, too, 
when we talk about um, our church and how we talk about uh, serving one another is simply find somebody who might worship differently than you and serve them this week. It might be somebody in this church, by the way. It might be somebody else. But it causes us to get outside of ourselves and remember why the church is here in the first place. And then, and then thirdly, I'd say maybe take some time and identify where you're strong and where you're weak because then you'll know how to respond. In those moments where you've identified where you're strong, you can say, man, I need to give a little more grace and despise a little less. And in the moments when you identify when you're weak, you might be able to say, I need to judge a little less here because my proclivity is going to be to one way or the other. So sit down with somebody you know and love and ask the question, where do you see my strength and where do you see my weak in light of Romans 14? Because at the end of the day, we're a church that seeks to serve one another because when we do that, people see Jesus. And that happens is we stop being a church of me and we start being a church that practices more and more meekness in all that we do. So, so let's go back to the question up top and all the different churches in our area. I think they're good, great, and grand. But I also want to ask the question, in a culture that makes even the church all about us, how are we, how are we making this place less about me and more about the good of others? Because that's what Jesus did. Jesus came and he started a movement not about himself, but about giving himself for others. May we do the, cha- the, may we do the same. And may we be a church of meekness so that people see the glory of God. Let me pray for us. God, I'm thankful that there are different people in this place They grow me. I'm thankful that you are bigger than our preferences, than even sometimes our conviction about how we worship. God, give us grace for one another. Give us an ability to allow you to judge and to love in a way that we might willingly limit our liberty so that people might see more of God. Grow our ability to be meek so that people might see the goodness of Jesus because that's what he did for us. Church is never perfect. There's always going to be differences of opinion. My hope and prayer is that through all that, people see that God's bigger and that he's worthy of our worship. Pray these things in the name of Jesus.